welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. Today we're going to talk about psychopharmacology, and as a special guest on the show to talk about psychopharmacology, we have Dr. Bob Grubbs. He teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he also teaches at Antioch University, Seattle, where he teaches various different psychology students about psychopharmacology. He also teaches dental students about psychopharmacology. And off the air, you said you wanted to start off by saying something in particular. Why don't you go ahead and say that right now? One of the important messages I'd like to get out there that, uh, you know, even though psychologists right now, for the most part, don't have prescription privileges, prescribing privileges, they still are in a really good position to help their clients understand the medications that many times they're already on. And they spend more time with those people than most of the physicians do. So they have a better opportunity to observe the client and sort of get a sense of what the issues might be related to the medications. So so when I teach it, that's what I try to focus on is uh, understanding what the drug classes are, but also what are the important uh, side effects that they might be uh, observing and how to... Uh, be aware, too, of potential drug interactions, especially those that are fatal. Right. Yeah. I want to get to that. Sure. Uh, but just a tiny question about the sort of work that you do aside from teaching. I'm curious. Do you prescribe? Can you prescribe drugs? No. No, okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm a Ph.D. Okay. Um, my degree is actually in psychology, uh, child and developmental. But uh, it was something I never went into. As soon as I got it, I went into a pharmacology department and did a four-year postdoc at Case Western Reserve. So, and then I went to the teaching faculty at this uh, medical school. So, uh, okay, so research-based, yes, and with uh, the plan of potentially teaching. Yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to do more research and teach, and um, and I managed to combine that pretty well. Across my career. So. Have you done research since you graduated? Uh, oh, yeah. I, um, I had grants, um, NSF grants, American Heart Association grants, uh, had a funded lab and uh, had several, I don't know, four or five PhD students who trained under me, um, published papers, did all of that. So, On what topics? Oh, they ranged from magnesium physiology, understanding how cells regulate magnesium, uh, to most recently, I was very interested in Gulf War Syndrome. Huh. So we had a big grant from the Department of Defense uh, to try to understand, if we could, what the underlying issues were that may have resulted in Gulf War Syndrome. Uh-huh. We were using um, pyridostigmine bromide, which was what the soldiers were given. Um, this was to protect them in case of a gas attack. So the fear at the time was that the Iraqis had sarin. And that they might be using it against our soldiers. This is back in 91, This is 91. This is Gulf War One. Yeah. yeah. All these soldiers came back with a sort of bizarre constellation of uh, symptoms. And no one could really understand it. It didn't fit with any of the other previous uh, conflicts, sort of uh, battle fatigue, uh, PTSD sort of thing. Cognitive deficits. It was kind of a diffuse syndrome. And there were people who were claiming that the soldiers were faking it to get Social Security. Right. So you did lab research, experimental research with mice and other animals to test hypotheses regarding uh, psychopharmacology and the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And you also teach. Uh, So getting back to something you said earlier, that psychologists and other clinicians that are working uh, with their clients, meeting with them every week for an hour, have a much better idea of what 
is going on with the patient and how potentially they're responding to a medication than a prescribing doctor or a nurse practitioner would have. And, you know, because often, whether you out there in Cyberland know this, a patient getting a medication like Prozac, for instance, might go to their family doctor and sit down for literally two minutes and talk about being down and depressed. The family doctor, among the various other things that they do, writes a script for Prozac, and they might not ever talk to that doctor ever again. Whereas therapists will talk in depth about how someone feels, what are your symptoms, mm-hmm. you know, what are the, how are the symptoms changing over time, how does it relate to stresses in your life and your sleep and all these things. And so you're saying that clinicians that are doing psychotherapy should know about psychopharmacology much more than they often do because they can help in, in what way? How would they, how can they use that knowledge? What they can do is pick up on things post-prescription. So as you were saying, if the primary care doc, PCP, uh, prescribes the drug, they may not see them for weeks, maybe months, uh, again, or if at all. And one of the problems with the way pharmacology is practiced or drug therapies practiced is that um, there's usually a standard starting dose for a drug, and it may be adequate, it may be inadequate, or it may be toxic. Again, depends on a variety of things. But it's not until the person's been on the drug for some period of time that that you will know whether or not it's working or whether there are toxicity issues to be um, dealt with. So somebody needs to to be watching and uh, reporting that other than the patient. And so just having trained eyes and ears uh, to do that, I think, is very important. Uh, Sometimes nurses can do this. In many situations, they do, because they'll often spend more time with the person than the doc. But uh, if this individual is also in um, talk therapy, then again, uh, you have a very good opportunity in the course of a 45, 50-minute session to kind of assess what what's going on. And patients will often talk about, well, I've got the, you know, I've had the, all these problems uh, uh, related to the medication. Well, I don't know if they're related to the medication, but since I've been on the drug, now I start doing feeling this way, or this has, you know, become an issue. Um, what do you think? And if you're sitting there and you don't know anything about it, there's not much you can add to uh, the conversation. But if you've had some training, then, and you recognize this as a potential toxicity issue or side effect for that drug that they're on, then you can uh, help them. Because they're told what might happen by the doctor and given material that will explain it, but it sometimes isn't retained by the individual or they're, I find, sometimes afraid to even look at the material because they don't want to know because it says a lot of scary things sometimes. Yes. And sometimes it requires a uh, professional to kind of sift through the information and sift through the risks and say, oh, you know, you know, what you might be facing here is a result of a memory problem as a result of the medication you took. Do you remember reading about that? Oh, I kind of remember saying that I might have problems with memory, but I didn't think it would happen. I didn't think I'd be roofied, essentially. <laughs> well, that medication has that effect sometimes. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know, but right. maybe that's what happened. And a therapist can help with that. And if they don't have the knowledge, then they can't do that. I I recently had a client who was on a number of medications uh, for an acute stress reaction, was given the medications by her primary care physician, who was not a psychiatrist, who was a, a family doctor. 
And that doctor, because she was so lost with this patient, would contact me and we would talk frequently. The patient was losing weight quickly. Things were not looking good for this person. And so we talked a lot and the, the doctor would rely on me a lot. And mm-hmm. I didn't know much about the medication. I didn't know much about the physical. I didn't, you know, knew very little about the physical, but I knew a lot about PTSD and I knew a lot about dissociation. I knew a lot about eating disorders and I could kind of package it. In some ways, I hate to say this, but I was kind of the therapist for the doctor at times because she was quite anxious because she doesn't, you know, she has a lot of training and a lot of things, but not in that area, but not in that area. And she was, uh, you know, naturally afraid for this patient. And so a lot of times I had to say, uh, we're, we're on course. It's just going to take time. Right. Stay the course. It's okay. And that's important for the patients to understand, too, that many medications, particularly psychotropics, the side effects kick in on the first dose in many cases, but the therapeutic effect can take weeks to manifest. Yeah. And if the patient doesn't know that and they start feeling worse, why are they going to continue to take the drug? Right. So there's a lot of psychoeducation that can be very helpful right. in therapeutic outcome here. So a patient might take a medication that might be helpful for them, but they come into the therapy office and they're, I'm not taking that medication anymore. It sucked, you know, after three <laughs> days. And if the therapist says, yeah, that sounds like a good choice, you know, without saying, well, what medication is it? And then going through their mind or flipping through the book like I would and learning about the onset of therapeutic effect. And they might say, you know what, just so you're perfectly free to do what you want to patient, but know that it takes a while for it to kick in. And they might go, oh, I kind of, again, I think we expect patients to retain information that they're told by their doctor or to read them at the very fine print involved in some of these medications, but I think that's a tall order. I find highly educated people have very little retention when it comes to this sort of stuff. So, uh, so therapists can help with that information and again, can help monitor it and help put it in perspective. Cause the other thing is, is when you are told all of these different possibilities and these different considerations with, with these medications, a lot of times it's hard to put it in perspective. You know, it's like, what, what does memory loss mean? Does mm-hmm. that mean I'll be like amnesic or does that mean like an episode, like a blackout, or does that mean that I'll just forget where my key, you know, what does that mean exactly? Mm-hmm. And, and a therapist can, has the time to talk about that uh, because again, uh, general practitioners are on the clock and they often try to get people in and out as fast as possible. And, uh, and also I think a lot of patients when they're at their doctors are afraid to ask questions. They don't oh, yeah. notice it. Whereas with the therapist, there's a better relationship presumably, and they can ask those questions. And if the, again, the therapist knows a lot about it, then they can help in that way. So that's, that's what you want to do as you're teaching clinicians. You want to help clinicians uh, with that expertise so they can help their patients. In that Absolutely. Way. Yeah. yeah. So what are some common misunderstandings or lack of knowledge regarding drug interactions that you see in general practitioners and other people? Well, it's hard to say in general in, in uh, professionals, but I think in the general public, one of the most um, commonly misunderstood interactions is among what I call CNS depressants. So anything that reduces the level of activity of the central nervous system. And if you look at a lot of the celebrity deaths that have occurred in the last 10 years, most of those are due to 
not understanding the interactions of, of multiple drugs that the person's taking. Who's famous that you can think of? Well, um, what's his name? Michael from? Jackson. Michael. Well, no. <laughs> In that case, that was clear problem with the physician um, misusing a medication. And I don't think Michael Jackson even knew what was going on there. Huh. I mean, the drug involved was propofol, which is a very good uh, anesthetic agent, but it was being used as a sedative. So the doctor was administering this to him every night to help him go to sleep. You don't do that with this drug. It's not meant to be used that way. It's used when people are having surgery or something? Right. Yeah. It's part of a, a regimen of anesthetic that you would give for somebody going under general anesthesia. Why was he giving it like that? That's a good question, and I can't, <laughs> I can't answer that. Would it give you a restful sleep? It might. Doesn't it usually mess you up the next day? Well, the barbiturates do, and so do the benzodiazepines, in the sense that they, used in that way as sedative hypnotic, um, they change the type of sleep that you have. Yeah. So we rely on REM sleep to help our brain sort of recover from what goes on during the day. And if you don't have REM sleep, you get kind of cranky. And it turns out that benzodiazepines and barbiturates uh, will rob you of REM sleep. Mm. You'll go to sleep faster, but you won't have the same quality of sleep. Uh -huh. Same with alcohol. Alcohol, I think, does it a little differently. But yeah, I think it, it just interferes with sleep. You'll pass out, but you don't get restful sleep. And you'll wake up maybe four or five hours later and you know be sweaty or whatever and can't get back to sleep for a mm -hmm. while. So to get back to the um, interaction, I'm thinking more of, what was her name? Anna Nicole Smith who um, died, and her autopsy report showed that she had four or five different benzodiazepines in her system. She had been drinking heavily, according to all the, the press reports. So there's two different classes of CNS depressants. But what apparently killed her was a drug called chlorohydrate, which is, again, a sedative. It's a liquid, and you typically don't find it outside a medical setting. But it's kind of an interesting drug because it has a, a, a history. If you go back to the classic films of the 1940s, the film noir, and people would go into a bar and somebody would slip them a Mickey, and the, the full name was a Mickey Finn, what they would do is pull out a little bottle and put a couple drops of this in your drink, and then you'd take the drink and you'd pass out very quickly. Well, they were putting chloral hydrate in there. So there's an interaction between the chloral hydrate and the alcohol, and it's a very potent synergism that gives you a very strong CNS depression. So the Mickey alone wouldn't necessarily... Well, Mickey alone will, will knock you out, but the combination with alcohol is, is it the, the, the interaction that in Anna Nicole Smith's case was probably fatal. Uh -huh. So she had three different classes of CNS depressants, and um, death was the end result. Heath Ledger was the other one I was thinking about. Uh -huh. Again, very accidental. He didn't realize, and I, I don't. Re I've never seen the autopsy report, but I, I know they mentioned benzodiazepines, and he might have been on a painkiller, and that's another potentially deadly combination. So, whose fault is it that these people were doing? I mean, Anna Nicole Smith shouldn't have been drinking. I'm sure her doctors were telling her that. Right. But the other things, because someone was obviously prescribed or not. I'm guessing they were prescribing these things. Right. To her. One of the problems I think is just the medical profession today. The fact that you go to different doctors. They each will prescribe you something. 
they should ask what other medications you're on. But in these cases, I don't know whether they did or not. But it's uh, it's not hard to imagine that a, you go in, you talk about a particular symptom, the doctor's in a hurry, doesn't bother to get that information, just prescribes you this med. And then you go to another doctor for a different problem, you get another med. And it's kind of up to the pharmacist to begin, if, if they're filled at the same pharmacy, to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're taking this already, and that's, that's a potential problem. Huh. But there's really no oversight. And so it's let the buyer beware. You know, you've got to do a little self-monitoring and some education, read the materials. The material you get from the pharmacist is generally pretty easy to understand. And there's usually a number to call if you've got a question about it. Pharmacists are very good sources of, of information to help you not end up in a situation like this. Better sources than PCPs? Yes. They are much more up on all the medications and all the problems with them. And in many cases, the interactions as well. I mean, having taught PCPs for many years, if they don't get any additional training, the only information they get on psychotropic drugs is in medical school. Mm -hmm. And that's in the context of all the other drugs that they're getting. And might have been 30 years ago. Might have been 30 years ago, and it might have been, you know, three or four classes. In contrast, psychiatrists get much more training, and they have much deeper knowledge yeah. about the medications and the, the issues with them. Right. And probably take more pride in staying up to date. They have to through yeah. continuing education uh, courses. So Yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, maybe you have a stat on this, get their medication from someone who isn't specialized in that rather than going to a psychiatrist. Do you know the stats on I that? I don't know any stats on it, but, uh, well, actually, the number that comes into my head is something like 80% of psychotropic medications are prescribed by primary care physicians, right. not psychiatrists. Right. And again, it's a, it's a matter of access. It's difficult uh, to see a psychiatrist. In many areas of the country, you have to wait six weeks to six months just to get an appointment. Why is that? That's a good question. I don't know. Because the psychiatrists that I know, I will start referring to them, and then my patients will say, oh, there's a six-month waiting list. I can't wait that long. And so I just stopped keeping a list of psychiatrists because backlog would be so long that it was pointless to refer to them. So I just tell people, well, go to your insurance and find someone who doesn't have a full caseload. It's just strange. If you look at the numbers of people who are taking psychotropic medications, it's an enormous number of people. And I'm sure it way outstrips the number of psychiatrists that are out there to, to deal with it. I, I seem to remember you saying something about, I don't know, like 50% or something of people have taken a psychotropic at some point. Or oh, yeah. It's at least that. Maybe ongoing, like what would your estimate be, like 10, 20% of people? At least. Right now are taking some yeah. sort of psychotropic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people who are who are taking them, obviously. I mean, in my personal life as well. It's, it's an enormous issue in this country. One that I think the healthcare profession really needs to, to deal with in a better way. How so? To improve the access and to do a better job, I think, of managing these types of illnesses. One of the debates has been, well, which is better, talk therapy or drug therapy? And it's interesting that all the studies that I'm aware of suggest the combination works better than either alone. So having that fact out there and having more access to combined therapy 
and good therapy, I think, is, is critical to reducing this. Well, the studies, I think, that you're referring to have to do with anxiety and depression. And when you do talk therapy, you get a certain response. When you do drug therapy, you get a certain response. But when you do talk therapy and drug therapy, you get an even better response than one alone. And not only a better response, but a better outcome. Okay. That in some cases, you'll get a response with the drug. But when you, re- you stop taking the drug, you, re- you relapse back to the initial problem. Right. That seems to be less of an issue when you do both the combination therapy. You get a longer, um, better outcome at that point. Right. So specifically, someone's depressed, and part of it is due to the way that they see the world and the way that they have structured their life. So they take a medication that will reduce their depressive symptoms to some extent, but they talk with a therapist about how to have a better life, a more happy life, a more positive way of thinking. And then a few years later, those skills sustain their uh, lesser depression. It's very analogous to the issue with obesity. Mm. You can take drugs like amphetamines and lose weight because it reduces your appetite. Mm -hmm. But if you don't also, at the same time, change your behavior, as soon as you stop taking the amphetamines, you'll put the weight back on. Right, right. And I think for disorders like depression and anxiety, it's much the same thing. The drugs make the brain more malleable or more uh, plastic to the sort of uh, input from talk therapy. Mm. But if you don't get that, it's just you've, you've reduced the symptoms for a brief period, and now you're right back in the same behavior patterns that got you there in the first place. Right. And by plastic, do you mean that their symptoms are less so that they're, they have the strength to think more flexibly? Or are you talking about actual plasticity? Both, I think. Oh. So actual neuronal plasticity. Um, the latest information coming out on drugs like the SSRIs, Prozac, Paxil, uh, Celexa, all of those, uh, suggests that what they really do is make synapses more plastic, more open to reconnections, connecting in different ways. Mm. So if you can induce behavioral change at the point when the brain is also mm. more uh, open to that, mm. that you can sustain these changes over a longer period of time. That's new research, right? It's come out in the last couple of years. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not in the general understanding of how the drug works. No, most people, and, and the dogma for years has been uh, these drugs increase the availability of serotonin and the synapse. Right. But what that doesn't take into account is the fact that you can demonstrate that, that increased availability of the neurotransmitter, within 30 to 60 minutes of taking the drug, and yet it takes three to six weeks for the therapeutic effect to be noticeable. Right. So how do you explain that difference? Right. But if you start thinking of it in terms of, well, now the brain is starting to remodel itself, and that's going to take some time and involve changes in DNA, the program being read, what proteins are being expressed, and now how the whole system is is interacting. Mm -hmm. That takes a longer period of time, and it makes more sense. It almost dictates talk therapy, or at least some regimen of self-reflection, that without uh, some contemplation about how you think, or the way you want to think, or the way you want to behave, when your brain is now plasticized, without some kind of therapy, then it might not work at all. Yeah, I, I seem to remember getting getting back to the drug interaction thing. I seem to remember just recently seeing a statistic that 100,000 people in the United States die every year from drug interactions, from mistakes about drug interactions that could have been prevented Yes, if someone or the patient could have said, you know what, those two things raise my risk for X. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Right. I mean, some of the... Um 
the interactions are, are really just overdose issues. Um, one that uh, I think is extremely important for people to understand is uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen. There are so many over-the-counter drug combinations for, you name it, headache preparations, uh, drugs used to treat colds that, all, that contain acetaminophen, and then many medications that are used to treat pain, more heavy-duty medications like Vicodin, also contain acetaminophen. The issue is that you can metabolize about 4 grams, 4,000 milligrams of acetaminophen safely per day. And it doesn't take that many pills to go over that because if you look, most uh, Tylenol tablets are 500 milligrams. So two Tylenol, 500 milligrams, and you're up to a quarter of the maximum that you can take in a day. The problem is if you go over that, you're at risk of injuring your liver in a very permanent sort of way. And uh, again, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but it's in the tens of thousands of patients or people that present an emergency room with acute liver failure that can be traced back to acetaminophen overdose. So to put it in terms that I can understand, <laughs> uh, acetaminophen is in uh, several different drugs. Yeah over-the-counter that, that people buy off the shelf at Safeway. And they think, oh, I'm in pain, I have a headache or something. They pop a couple. Two hours later, they're, they're still in pain. They, they pop a couple more, a couple more. And then maybe later on, they're like, oh, I feel kind of sick. And they take some other medication and, they don't, and it says don't take more than this amount, but they don't equate that it's, it's a similar drug that they just took earlier in the day. They pop a couple more. And the body is trying to metabolize or get rid of the compound that's in the bloodstream, right? Right. Through the liver. Through the liver. And it's metabolizing it with enzymes. Right. And different compounds are shed from the body in different rates. The maximum you can take in any day is four grams, which is 4,000 milligrams. Right. That's eight Tylenol, right? Because it's 500 milligrams per Tylenol. So in a 24-hour period, if you took... If you took 16, you'd be in bad shape. Because you would have, at that point, a toxic level of acetaminophen in right. your bloodstream. But the real problem is that, say, you know, you're, you've got a headache and you've uh, injured, you know, yourself, you've got a, a bad knee. And some doctor gave you Vicodin for that. Or you went to the dentist yeah. and you had some work done. You got a Vicodin. Well, you wouldn't look at Vicodin and know that it contains a pretty good dose of acetaminophen. Uh -huh. You know it's got an opiate in it because that's, you know, what the most primary. people... The primary. But it's the combination is, is better than either one individually. Uh -huh. So the problem is that there are many drugs out there that contain it that you have to read the fine print to find out that it's uh -huh. there. So someone gets Vicodin, which is more associated with an opiate rather than acetaminophen. Most people would, would associate it, yeah, with an opiate uh, that's in it rather than the acetaminophen. That's added in. Right. And then they take more Tylenol. Right. And then the toxic level of acetaminophen in the bloodstream harms the liver. Right. And then you have liver failure and they go to the hospital and it's discovered and then they count it as one of those examples of, and that could even kill you? Yes. Oh, yeah. So that would be one of those 100,000 people a year who die from... You could need a liver transplant from yeah. them. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Just from a simple Vicodin that you get from the dentist and then some simple Tylenol that you buy at your grocery store, boom, liver, liver failure. 
I mean, these are the sorts of things that I remember talking with you about that just blow my mind. Yes. That there isn't more aware. I feel, I feel like we need some kind of a, you know, how there's like an AIDS walk and gay pride parade. I feel like we need a pharmacology <laughs> pride day. What would you call it? Pharmacology <laughs> awareness run of right. some sort. What color ribbon would it be? It'd be like, uh, I don't know. I think light blue, you know, because isn't, um, what's the medication for boners? <laughs> <laughs> Viagra. Viagra. Uh, Viagra is a little blue pill, right? Well, or you could go with yellow for Cialis. Yes. A yellow? Okay. Yeah. Yellow? Yellow yeah. or light blue? Something yeah. something along those lines. And we need to raise awareness because I feel like nobody understands this. I feel like everyone's like, well, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm just going to... I know it says... And I'm guessing that some medication, they say, don't take more than six in a 24-hour period. Oh, it says that on each, you know, if you go to, uh, just look at the bottle of Tylenol, it will tell you what the maximum is that you can take in a 24-hour period. Does that for all of those? It doesn't necessarily mention that you could have liver failure, because like, for instance, and maybe they do, but for instance, Tums, mm -hmm. there's a maximum of Tums you're supposed to take, but I'm guessing that you're not going to die if you take the double amount of Tums. I'm Probably guessing you not. just have indigestion or some kind of GI problem. Right. I, don't, I don't know that. Because when I think of Tylenol and taking too much Tylenol, I think, well, you're probably just going to be tired or you're just going to have some GI problems, you know, mm -hmm. maybe a little bleeding, maybe a little ulcer, but not like complete liver failure right. from something as simple as Tylenol on the shelf. Yeah. So we need more awareness out there. We do. And the FDA is trying. Um, they're, they're going about it a little differently. They're trying to get the drug manufacturers to reduce the amount of acetaminophen in these combination drugs so that it, it will be harder to exceed that limit. So trying to get Vicodin to take acetaminophen out of there. Or, or just reduce it. Cut it from, I, I don't even know what it is off the top of my head, 400 milligrams, 500, to half that. So that, again, you would have to take double the amount to get into trouble. Yeah. And by then you might be in trouble with, from the opiates. So that's the problem. Does this sort of thing drive you nuts? <laughs> a little bit. Because you know it all, and, and, and you're just watching people suffer for just a lack of simple knowledge. Well, I, I don't watch them suffer, but I, I feel obligated to pass this information on as part of my job so that more people will know and pass that on so that we can reduce these issues. So. Well, another complication with drugs that I remember you talking about has to do with Grapefruit juice or oh, yeah. pineapple juice? Grapefruit. Grapefruit juice. This gets into one of the classes of enzymes that you mentioned before that metabolize drugs. So I'll pause you. So in the liver, there are several different enzymes. Oh, lots of different kinds of enzymes. Like hundreds or something that, that break down various different compounds that come through the liver. The blood goes through the liver and uh, takes out things that the body is trying to get rid of over time. And one of the enzymes is affected by grapefruit juice. So it turns out that grapefruit juice very selectively inhibits this one enzyme. It happens to have a funny name. It's called cytochrome P450-3A4. That's its technical name. Sounds like a planet. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And there is no other name for it. But, but it's an important enzyme because about 40 to 50 percent of the medications that you take are metabolized at some point by this one enzyme. So it's fairly important. And if you drink enough grapefruit juice regularly, it's going to reduce the ability of that enzyme to do its job to metabolize these drugs. So the result is that whatever drug you're taking that normally is broken down by this enzyme will build up in the blood. And that will likely produce some 
evidence of toxicity because you try to keep blood levels at a level that will produce the, the therapeutic response, what you're taking the drug for, but not so much that you begin to see symptoms of toxicity from overdose of the drug. So you might be taking an anti-anxiety medication and they know through research that a certain level is toxic. And so they give you a medication based on that knowledge, knowing that your cytochrome P453A4, um, that they know that this enzyme is in your liver doing its work. It's all over your body. It's all over your body. But it's, you know, it's, it's important in the liver because when you ingest a drug or anything, where that gets absorbed goes first to the liver before it goes anywhere else. Yeah. So it's called the portal circulation, goes to the liver. The liver gets first crack at anything that's coming through that blood and will reduce, you know, will metabolize a certain percentage of that. So you take it into your stomach, goes into your lower intestine, then it gets absorbed through the membrane, mm-hmm. goes immediately to the liver. Mm-hmm. And the doctors know that they're going to give you a certain dose, knowing that your liver is going to get rid of a certain amount of it right off the bat right. before it eventually gets to your brain. Right. Whereas if you're drinking pineapple juice, it inhibit doesn't destroy the enzyme, but just grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice. I Somehow, know you want it. I know you want it to be pineapple. Pineapple juice. juice. <laughs> I, I, I think of them as similar. My mouth waters with either one of them thought in my brain, but. So with grapefruit juice, you, you drink that and it inhibits but doesn't destroy the enzyme. It just it, it just kind of makes it so that it can't do its job. Right. And so you take your regular medication on that day and it goes into the liver. Liver doesn't metabolize the drug as well as it can. And now you have a toxic level that ends up going up to your brain. And it's a very important enzyme. Yes. And an enzyme that is a, an important part of the uh, pharmacokinetics. Pharmacokinetic. Pharmacokinetics involved in various different psychotropics. And doctors or prescribing people might not ever mention that this grapefruit juice (laughs) (laughs) uh, might actually kill them or cause a toxic level that could cause some major complications. Yeah, I don't think it's going to kill them, but it could Yeah, it could put them into the uh, toxic blood level for the medication. It could kill them, right? I mean, there's some... Some medications, Like CNS depressants, if if that... If that was one. I don't... Off the top of my head, there's so many drugs that are metabolized there, I I can't keep them all in my head. Okay. But I think what's more important is, uh, and the question I'm always asked is, well, so how much grapefruit juice do you have to drink before this becomes an issue? And my response is, well, it depends. If you just have a uh, you know half a grapefruit once a week, probably not an issue. But if you're the person that gets up every day, has grapefruit juice in the morning, maybe a second glass in the afternoon or in the evening, and you do this every day, then that's an issue. Uh-huh. So it's the regularity of it uh, that that would become a, a, an issue. Right. And how many doctors ask them about this? Uh, good question. We don't know, but I'm guessing not very many. Because they either don't know about it or it just doesn't cross their mind. Right. I've never had a podcast make my mouth water so much. <laughs> um, well, and I also remember you talking about how different ethnicities will respond differently oh, yeah. to medication because of differences in these enzymes. Again, we're all the product of many eons of evolution. And until uh, you know we started moving around the world, um, our uh, genetic pool was was fairly limited. So as different populations evolved over time, certain mutations would pop up in various 
proteins, and some of these carried along over centuries, and, and that's what we inherit today as part of our unique gene pool. So not only do, say, Asians tend to have more black hair, but they also have different enzymes that are expressed in their liver. The one that is most commonly associated with Asians is the lack of ability to metabolize alcohol. We call it Asian red face. Asian red face. Because <laughs> when, when Asians drink alcohol, right. because I'm guessing what, from what you're saying, the liver isn't breaking it down. The enzyme is just defective. So it doesn't have the capacity that most Caucasians, let's say, would have. So as a Caucasian, I would break down alcohol much more rapidly than perhaps you as an Asian would. Right. So that I could drink twice as much as you could before I would get flushed, let's and, just say as a... As and, a the, and also as drunk? As drunk, yes. You would become drunk much more quickly because right. you're not breaking it down, the blood levels are building up, and also there's an intermediate product which causes the, the flushing and the nausea and all of that, and that's going to build up as well. Right, and so a lot of Asians will have super red, blotchy faces. Is it just in the face or is it all over the body? I don't know. I, I feel like it's just the face. I wouldn't be surprised if it's more than that, but probably you'll notice it most there. Right, because, you know, they're not naked, right? <laughs> well, maybe by then they're naked because they can't handle their alcohol, but, but they get... Um, I have no opinion on that. They get blotchy in the face, and they look like they're breaking out in hives or yeah. something. And uh, not all Asians get this. But there's a very high, much higher prevalence in Asians than in other ethnicities. Right. So that's, that's the example. But, but for other, like there are many other cytochrome P450s other than the 3A4 we discussed. And there are, again, differences in the mutations that have accrued over time among various ethnic groups that, that you can see if you study the activity of that enzyme across different ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And the manifestations of that are very real. I did a talk on, on this at a psychology meeting a couple of years ago, and someone in the audience raised their hand and said, oh, yes, um, in the practice that I'm associated with, if, if we get a new client who I think she said was Korean, we ask that they undergo this panel of tests to see what their level of enzymes are for these, this particular series before we give them any medications. Mm. Because we, we know from, from our history that there's a high frequency of a mutation among Koreans that means that a standard dose that we would give of a psychotropic would be toxic to them. Yeah. So we want to avoid that. So we, we need to find out which group they fall into. And if they have the defective enzyme, then we'll lower the dose or, or go to a different drug altogether. Right. So this one physician is, a, is an oasis of ethnic awareness right. in a vast sea of people who are unaware and who will prescribe without asking the ethnicity, or maybe they know the ethnicity, but they don't know that it matters right. when it very well could matter a lot. You could give someone one drug and with the expectation, well, in general population, when we give, when we conduct studies among white people, mm-hmm. which is the primary group, and I think you said white men are the primary group that research has been done on psychotropics. Historically, although I think that's changed, well, it had to change about 20 years ago, but, right. but yeah, most of our data is on white men. Right. And then white women added to that more recently. And so they say, well, Toxic levels are blank and therapeutic levels are lower at blank. And so we'll give this person the therapeutic level. Doesn't matter what ethnicity they are because we don't know any different when these other people are saying and yourself included are saying, look, it very much matters. 
based on research, you can know that some people of certain ethnicities are at greater risk of, of having a toxic level established by this dosage that normally is, is not toxic to other people. Mm-hmm. I find that just to be incredibly fascinating that the field could be that ignorant about something so simple, especially in the States where you have a lot of different ethnicities, right? Oh, you do. I mean, if you're in the middle of Sweden, I'm guessing that things are a little different. And how many physicians aren't white? You would think they would get on board with something like this. Well, to be fair, I think this is information that's really just, I won't say it's it's brand new, but it's only come out in the last 15 to 20 years. And there's always a lag as this comes out of the research you know, this this is primary research that's that's uncovered a lot of this. That filters into textbooks over time and into lectures. And so there's a lag in training that will happen. And I think we're sort of in that phase right now. The other piece of this is that there's some controversy over exactly how important this is truly in, in clinical medicine. I'm of the opinion that it is important and that there are needs to be better understanding of this. Uh, the data are not really there yet to support the, the difference in clinical outcomes. And there are some instances, I think, where it's pretty clear. I think the best example is with respect to a commonly used uh, oral anticoagulant drug called warfarin. Um, many, many people take warfarin after they've had heart valve replacement or stents put in or whatever. And there are different mutations to the enzyme that metabolizes warfarin, such that if you have a particular mutation, your ability to metabolize warfarin is reduced by about 80%. 80%. So now all of a sudden you give a standard dose of warfarin, the blood levels are extremely elevated compared to somebody who has the normal capacity to metabolize it. And now these people are at risk for hemorrhaging and all sorts of bleeding events at double the rate of the normal population. Now that's pretty substantial. So they have a some kind of uh, like a valve replacement. Right. And you don't want clots to build up in the blood. Right. Uh, as might happen otherwise, because clots can go up to the brain or other places cause and, and cause strokes or other kind of blockages. Right. And so they take this warfarin that re- reduces the likelihood of your blood clotting mm-hmm. and that certain people will metabolize it much slower. And so that when they take it, the blood levels rise to a level where your body can't coagulate at all. And since you have tiny little cuts in your vascular system every day, all the time, or, or cuts that actually happen as it, due to injury, they might just bleed out or bleed into their brain or bleed out into their body and, and then have a complication that way. In the extreme, yeah. And if they had the knowledge that certain people, certain ethnicities, are you saying ethnicities of people have this polymorphism? I don't know that this one tracks so much to ethnicity. I've not. But some people. In the population, there are about, there's sort of three different populations. Those with normal, those with about a 40% loss of activity, and those with about an 80% loss. Right. So we track into sort of three different groups. How that breaks down ethnically, I don't know. Yeah. It, to me, it basically means that before a medication is given to someone, they have to give some kind of genetic test or I I don't know. But another thing um, that is not understood is that, and a friend of mine got into trouble with this, the drug inhibits the production of certain clotting factors is what it does. And the, the drug is actually a mimic in some sense of vitamin K. Well, you get a lot of vitamin K in green leafy vegetables. And so if you change your diet when you're on this drug and all of a sudden you start eating a lot of broccoli, 
or kale or something very rich in vitamin K, you can interfere with the function of this drug. So here's a, this gets away from the ethnicity, but another, in essence, food interaction with drugs. You can end up finding that now all of a sudden you're not getting the inhibition of clotting and you're starting to throw clots. You'll have a stroke simply because you changed your diet. So again, it's really important to understand the interactions of all of this. So and, complicated and would require a lot of time by the doctor and a lot of follow-up, expensive. What I'm surprised is that the doctors haven't been sued up the yin-yang about <laughs> these sorts of things. I mean, 100,000 people a year dying from drug interactions, and then, you know, how many other people have just complications that don't result in death? You would think that the doctors would be paranoid about this and would be overly careful about this sort of thing, but it seems, according to anecdotal evidence for me, that they don't tend to be as scared as I think they ought to be, or in the general public, you would think would be more scared too. Um, all right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Grubbs. Happy to be here. Yeah, it was wonderful to talk with you. Maybe you'll come back on the show and talk about more of the things that you know about. Be happy to do that too. Thanks for joining us out there and please take care of yourself. 